On behalf of Yarra Libraries, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. I also acknowledge the significant contributions made by other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to life in Yarra and pay my respects to elders from all nations here tonight and to the elders past, present and future. Hi everyone, I'm Megan and I'm a Collections and Reader Development Librarian at Yarra Libraries. Now, as you might have guessed from tonight's event, the doors of the library are closed right now, but at home we're working harder than ever. On our website, you'll find everything that you usually would at the library in a different form, from ebooks to video story times, Zoom book clubs, podcasts, and digital author talks like this one. I'm really excited to be introducing the August meeting of the Kilia Darling's first book club. Uh, Ellen Cregan will introduce the club better than I could, but before that, right now, there are less opportunities to see a new release book face out in your local bookstore or library, making the Kilia Darling's first book club and Kilia Darling's more generally even more important than usual for readers and for writers. Ellen, would you like to take it away? Thanks, Megan. So my name's Ellen and I'm the first book club host for Kill Your Darlings. And the first book club is a feature we do every month to kind of highlight an author's debut book, basically. And this month it's our August book, which is The Fogging by Luke Horton, who's here. Um, thanks so much for joining me, Luke. Well, thanks for having me, Ellen. It's a great honour to be part of the first book club. It's great. We're going to start with a reading from the book by Luke, just for those people who haven't had a chance to read it yet. So take it away, Luke. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Found a um, very old bookmark from the book I used to uh, work out with my, my parents in Smith Street, Collingwood. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> my, uh, in my copy of the book at the moment. Anyway, all right. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to read a scene from the book, which is um, come to be called The Fogging Scene, which is really, I guess, the central incident in some ways in the book. So it's hard to know how much uh, context to give people, but it's, um, yeah, so it's a couple of academics. They're in um, the mid-30s. They're in Bali. They're having a holiday, first holiday for a long time. And they're on the beach at Sunur in Bali. And Tom is on the beach and his partner Clara is in her room and she gets caught in something they call the fogging. And this scene is really when, when, that, when that happens. So maybe that's enough. Uh, okay. So the first thing he knew about it was the sound. It came to him as if from a dream or something from out of a dream, outside of a dream, something real, puncturing it. It was like a mower starting up or a scooter. But when he turned around, he saw two men coming along the path, one in an official looking uniform and one wearing a gas mask with a machine strapped to his waist. The machine was something like a leaf blower, but heavier, all chrome, and it billowed out smoke in a continuous thick spray, disappearing plants and trees and paths and outdoor tables and chairs. The uniformed man seemed to be in charge of clearing the area, but he got waylaid by a group coming off the boardwalk into the hotel. The man with the machine was moving fast, and the smoke began drifting rapidly across the boardwalk towards Tom and the cabanas. He stood up. Several other employees materialised, including a security guard. As they watched, three young women rushed out from the hotel onto the beach, clutching belongings. Tom moved over to the security guard, who was keeping his distance, presumably the safe distance, but not moving further away as the smoke rolled towards them. Tom asked him what was going on, what they were spraying. Smoke, he said. Smoke? Yes, yes, smoke, smoke for the bugs, flies, he pantomimed, swatting flies from his face. What is it, though? Tom asked. Smoke, he repeated. Tom stared at it. The thick white fog was now obscuring pretty much all view of the hotel grounds, reaching high into the treetops and covering the boardwalk like mist rolling in from the sea, but going the wrong way, or like dry ice over a dance floor. 
He watched it for a minute or two and was half sitting back down when Clara emerged from the smoke, rushing towards him. She looked stricken. It's just smoke, they say, he said, standing back up. It's pesticides, chemicals, she said, moving beyond him onto the beach. Nobody told me. I saw it coming under the door, so I went outside and the whole place was so full of smoke I could barely see. I thought the hotel was on fire. But it didn't smell like fire. It smelled like fucking horrible chemicals. She held his gaze for a moment and then backed further down the beach towards the water. The fog had reached the cabanas now, was engulfing their bamboo blinds and floating out into the air, although it was thinning elsewhere, the hotel coming back into view through the haze. Tom followed her. She began talking rapidly. I tried to shut myself into the, in the room and I went into the bathroom, but it was coming under the door in through the louvers, so I had to leave. And then outside I saw someone who told me they were fogging, whatever the fuck that means, and it would be over in a minute or two. And she said to stay in my room or to go out into the beach, so, but I was surrounded by it. I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to walk through clouds of fucking pesticides to get out here, so I thought I could get above it. And I went up the stairs of one of the bigger bungalows, but it was up there too, so I went back down. Then I got down and lay on the path. Her voice was shaking. I thought it would rise up, float up, and maybe being on the ground was the best place to be. But then I thought, this is ridiculous, and got up and ran out here. I could barely see where I was going. It was like a nightmare. Why didn't they tell us? She was close to tears. Tom couldn't decide if she was being absurd by being so melodramatic, or if he was being absurd for taking at face value the clearly inadequate reassurances of the security guard. I wonder what it is, he said stupidly. Tom saw then that the two women he had seen earlier in the cabanas were standing nearby. They looked his way. You seen this before, he asked. Oh yeah, the closest one said. They do it all the time for the mozzies. Nobody told me, said Clara. They didn't come to my room. The woman looked at her. It's okay, love, said the second woman. Everyone gets coordinates sooner or later. And then she laughed. There it was then. Tom was relieved. Thank you so much. That was great. It is, it is like a nightmare hearing that read aloud again. <laughs> So before we kind of get stuck more into the thematic stuff in the book, I actually wanted to ask you about the publication side of things, um, which is always interesting to hear from debut authors. So how did this book come into being from, from the first idea to the beautiful product we have here today? Well, it's a little hard to say, really, I guess, like how a book starts. Like, I think, I mean, I guess the way I tell the story really is that something a little like the incident that I just read actually happened to me and my partner when we were in Bali. And when it happened, it was, it, was, it was traumatic for my partner to be stuck in the hotel room when that happened. But it seemed to both her and me that it was a great idea for a story. And she said, you know, you should write about this. This is a great idea, a great idea for a story. So I have to credit her. So then at the time I was writing a novella, it had just been shortlisted for a prize for that um, Seizure Viva La Novella prize. I don't know yep. if it's running it but it's where they have a, a novella prize. So it has to be about 20,000 words and the winners get published as a book. So they published two or three books and mine was only shortlisted, not the winner. So it didn't get published. But then I was sort of toying around with that book and I was like, what am I going to do? But then that happened, fogging thing. And I was like, well, maybe I should start writing about that. And it became this compulsive, new, really productive story. Yeah, so it was a lot of fun trying to decide, like, figure out who the characters were, how it would figure in their lives yeah, how it would be a pivotal moment, who these people were. And so I thought I was writing a short story for a while. And then I wrote another novella version of it, submitted it for that prize again. And then I just, I just kept generating material, I guess. So I just kept feeling like I had more to do with the story and with these characters. And so I realised at one point I had to bite the bullet and turn it into a novel. So yeah, so then it became a novel. And so then I knew that the Unpublished Manuscript Award, that Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, 
which you knew very well because you judged one year with me. But yes, yeah, so then I knew that was coming up sort of the deadline for that was like October or November or whenever it is. And I sort of used that. I had a year or something or 10 months or something. After I'd been working on it a while, I was like, I'm just going to try and use that as my deadline and get this book done. And I did. And it was baggier, rougher, weirder book that I submitted for that prize. But I got it in. I knew it wasn't kind of finished. I think it is nice to use sort of prizes and stuff like that kind of as a deadline. Like it really makes you... And I had a, um, my daughter, Albertine, was born, I think, that year. So I went from having a little, little bit of time to write to hardly any time to write. <laughs> I just sort of squeezed it around other things for a while. And still, because I was, I was somewhat along with the story, I guess that helped. Like if I was starting from scratch and having a newborn, there's no way I would have been productive. But it was halfway through the novel when she came along. So it was really, I had the momentum. So yeah, long story short, I guess. So I used that, I used that prize, then got as a deadline, then got highly commended for it. You know, it's just a very prestigious prize, the Unpublished Manuscript Award. And if there's any writers here tonight, I really recommend you um, checking it out because it's a really great way for an, an author who has like no profile or whatever to get recognition by being shortlisted or even highly commended as I was. And then publishers are really interested in reading your work after that. And so that's what happened to me. And all these publishers were really interested in reading the work. Yeah, so I met with various publishers and editors. And then I had the, I was in this like amazing position all of a sudden where I kind of got to choose amongst a few people who I was going to work with. And it was about finding the editor with the right fit. And, um, and I met Anna Thraits at um, Scribe. And I knew pretty much straight away she was probably the one to work with. And it was just, yeah, and then it was a great experience working with her for about a year, I guess, after that point revising the book, writing new stuff, expanding stuff, getting rid of stuff. Yeah, and so I knew it was kind of baggy and needed work when I submitted for that prize, so I was really grateful that they highly commended it because I knew it wasn't quite there at the time. And I knew it needed work, but I was sort of so in the thick of it, I couldn't really tell what that work was anymore, what needed to be done. I couldn't see the wood for the trees, I guess. And I felt like at that point I really needed an editor or someone to come along and go, you know, because I could have kept working on it, but I might have been making it worse at that point. Like, you know, I didn't know, I couldn't see what were the strengths and weaknesses anymore. But so, yeah, Anna was great and all her thoughts were very aligned to mine and she really helped me see it clearly what needed to be done to make it the best book. And it was really getting rid of just some baggier chapters towards the end that took it in all these, all these other directions. I think I was trying to squeeze a couple of books into one or something at some point. So it became a little tighter more concise and a bit more streamlined and a bit pacier or something. And that just took a while because, yeah, I was parenting and teaching and, and all of that. And then, yeah, I guess another year later it came out. As you mentioned just then, you and I were co-judges for the um, VPLA Unpublished Manuscript. And that was just as you were doing the final edits for your book, wasn't it? Like the final copy edits. So what was that yes. like being on the other side? So being a judge while your judged book was sort of about to be released? Well, it really gave me, I guess, it really emphasized the importance of the prize. And I like it because I was so grateful for that prize. Like, as I said, that week after being highly commended, I had like all these emails from all these editors and everybody wanting to read the book. And I got an agent really quickly after that. And she helped me, Grace Hafetz, at our left, left Bank Literary. And she really helped me negotiate all that because I had no idea. You know, I'd been somewhat, I guess, involved in the, the literary world because I was an editor. I was working as... um editor of the Lifted Brow Review of Books. You know, so I was receiving review copies and books every week in the mail and I was dealing with publicists all the time. 
yeah, reading a lot of contemporary and Australian fiction and stuff like that. So I was fairly ensconced in the industry in some ways, but in other ways I had no idea how to negotiate having a book coming out or anything. So that was great to have her on board, but it's not really answering your question. Uh, <laughs> I guess, yeah, no, it just made me really appreciative of the opportunity and it made me, I mean, I would have taken it seriously anyway, but it just, yeah, it would be lovely to, to have that a year later to be able to be part of it in a different way and be a judge and get to read all that stuff read all that work and uh, I guess it just made me again just feel how lucky I was to be highly commended because I know as a part of that judging process you know you have quite a few really promising manuscripts and you have to make it was really difficult hard, tough decisions don't you yeah really difficult and that's why there's more than one judge I guess so you totally. have to have, <laughs> and yeah that was really great experience doing that judging and it meant I got to um, go to that ceremony again at it was at M Pavilion yes outside yeah. I remember it well yeah, that, that, <laughs> our uh, previous lives. So yeah, to be there again in a different capacity and it was really, really lovely. Yeah. And sort of, I mean, this is the question that everyone's probably asking you at the moment, but what do you, do you have any reflections on being a debut author during COVID-19? It's, it must be such a strange time to sort of have your first book out. And although you don't really have anything to compare it to necessarily, how has it been doing your like publicity and meeting your readers and all those kinds of things through, through the camera? Well, you're right. On one level, it's true because I don't have anything to compare it to because so sometimes I'm wondering, is this feeling all very weird because of what we're living through or is this just first book um, emotions? Weirdness. Oh, yeah, the roller coaster of having a first book out. Yeah, I mean, I guess initially when everything happened, you know, there was a lot of anxiety and stress around what was happening in the book industry, what would happen to books. All these other books got pushed forward. A whole lot of books are coming out now and or later in the next couple of months, October, September, October, which would have maybe come out in May, June, July. And so there was all that to work out. Was my book even going to come out when it was supposed to come out? And Scribe made the call to put my book out as it was planned in July, but did push out a lot of other books. And I guess their reasoning for that was just like, you know, people are in lockdown, they still want to read. People are still interested in Australian yeah debut novels and maybe even more so than ever because they've got less other things they can do with them, um, their, themselves. Yeah, I think in some ways, I mean, so many, there's so many different things and aspects you could talk about, but in some ways in terms of the book and the publicity and all of that, like it was actually quite, I, I mean, I think it was a good decision. It meant in some ways there was less competition for attention in July when yeah. my book came out. Yeah, I got a, a, a lot of interest and I've, had, I've done quite a few of these kind of Zoom, you know, I had an online launch, which was, you know, weird, but it was all. <laughs> It's still lovely and it still felt like a, a celebration and there were so many friends and family there. So it still had that feeling of a party, a little bit, uh, a celebration. So, you know, I can't really complain. My book came out, number one. You know, I've had, um, I've, had, I've had more, a greater response, I guess, to the book than I would have expected, like more opportunities, more reviews, more events and you know it would have been lovely to do those things in person and maybe go to Sydney or Brisbane and, and go to a bookshop there and you know have an event in places like that certainly missed those opportunities the publication of my book has been like a really great ride for me so so yeah I can't complain too much and I got so used to this zoom you know I teach I teach yeah. too, so I'm so used to it now so that's fine. You, you just, you know, it took a while getting used to the idea. I wasn't going to be able to have a party. You know, at some point I was going to have maybe some friends at my house because at some point things were that you could still have people at your house. And then I think the week of my launch, that went as well. And so you couldn't have that. So I sort of went from like, oh, I can have a couple of people around to nobody, <laughs> but it's fine. Reader response and the critical response, all that stuff's been 
as I say, yeah, more than I expected. And I've had so many great reviews. I mean, I'm not blowing my own horn. I mean, I just mean very nice reviews, you know, where people engaged well with the work. And I really were just, yeah. So I've been really grateful for all of that. And people do still seem really interested in Australian books and Australian fiction at the moment. So, and bookshops have been really lovely. That's one thing I've missed, I guess, is being able to walk into bookshops and see my book on the shelf. But I've walked past windows and I've been scouring on their um, Instagrams and spotting my books in the corners of photos and stuff like that. So, you know, you do what you have to. I think you're really right about the um, the release date thing. Like, I'm so glad that your book didn't move because there was that little patch of like May, June, July where there wasn't a lot to read. And I think the sort of bookish community did really want to celebrate books and we're very lucky that yours was still there to celebrate. And it'll be nice in a month when everyone else's book comes out at the same time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Though a bit squishy. So some of, in my reading, some of the most amazingly crafted parts of the book are these passages that describe this really horrendous anxiety that the protagonist Tom is having. Is How did you kind of do the research for those passages? Because they're really visceral and, and terrifying and, and just brilliant. Oh, thanks. Um, I like brilliant, terrifying, yeah. I guess, yeah, that's one of the things where um, it's so hard um, when you're writing that stuff. Like, yeah, you know, you're kind of aware, Am I? is this going to be cathartic for people to read or just triggering or, you know, just traumatic or what is it going to be? But I think once I realised that was who I was writing, that Tom was this anxious person dealing with an anxiety disorder, that figured really prominently in his life and in his relationships and in the silences in his relationships and figured as this kind of elephant in the room, I guess, between in his relationship with Clara, then I sort of realised I had to go deep into it and not just sort of, you know, I've certainly read plenty of books where there's, you know, anxiety as a theme or anxious characters, but sometimes it feels like it's kind of glossed over or, yeah, not really delved into. And I think I wanted to... Well, I guess for him, he is going through a particularly bad patch during the action of most of the book. So I wanted to go into that and really explain how it feels to be going through a panic attack um, and how it affects him because he's not honest with it, with his partner, Clara, about it. So he's trying to, he's got that, that compounds his anxiety because he's trying to conceal it as well as get over and deal with all these symptoms and then he's trying to do on top of that, conceal it from the people around him. And he can't be honest to people around it, which just makes it worse. Yeah, I didn't really do much research. I mean, I have suffered from anxiety off and on in my life. So I don't mind like admitting that or talking about that. And But plenty of people I know have or sometime or another in their lives or to some degree or have some sort of anxiety. So I guess I was just drawing on that personal experience. People I know certainly didn't feel like I needed to do much research to understand uh, um, anxiety because I had plenty of that in my life. Like my mother suffered from anxiety as well. And, you know, it's been around me in one way or another, you know, most of my life. So that stuff sneaks up on you. Like you don't really, well, I didn't anyway. Like I don't, I don't plan out. I didn't plan out this book. It was very much had that sort of central incident and then creating characters organically from that. Um, so I certainly didn't set out to write about anxiety or, you know, write a book about anxiety disorders or didn't plan to have a character who had one. But I guess subconsciously it was something I wanted to explore in fiction. And then when I was on it, on that track, I, it was very generative. It really produced pages. So it felt like I was onto something that was interesting to me and, yeah, something I wanted to say about it, I guess. So Absolutely. I think my favourite quote in the whole book was um, there's a point where Tom's reflecting on his anxiety and he says, there was no architecture for anxiety, no planning for it. I just think that's so 
Excellent. And also in the context of the character, he's, he's a, he's like an academic in urban planning. Is that right? Have I remembered that correctly? Um, Can you kind of extrapolate on that quote just a little bit, just, just for my own joy in it? Yeah. Well, I guess he's reflecting on the fact that he is an urban planner, a historian of urban history. He's not really an urban planner. He's an academic. He studies urban planning. And that's sort of one of his problems, I guess, with it. And one of the frustrations of academia, and I was an academic for a while too, before I kind of switched tack and started teaching creative writing and editing and, and writing. And I was a historian and I have taught some urban history classes. So I drew an experience there too, but I've never done architecture or anything like that. So I, I did have to do a bit of research on that aspect of the book. Yes. So in that passage, he's reflecting on I guess the way that anxiety and mental health is a stated aim in planning now these days, like as an issue, it is something that people have an awareness of that they just didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago. In in a more broad sense, everyone is talking about anxiety and anxiety disorders and mental health in a way that they didn't used to. The stigma has lifted uh, to a large degree, I think. And so on Twitter, you have people talking about their mental health quite openly and about anxiety and being on antidepressants and all sorts of things like that. I would say maybe that's predominantly women, maybe men less so. Again, I'm taking a while to get to the question. Yeah, so I guess he's sort of reflecting on that. And, And architectural firms and academics do now talk about the architecture of mental health and anxiety and how to help social anxiety. They do build buildings with that stuff in mind and architectural firms will have that in their stated aims in their plans but tom as an acute sufferer kind of knows that or is cynical about how much he can really do for people in an architectural sense you can put calming music in you can put um lots of like indoor plants and n- natural light and stuff and all those things are lovely but if your problem is being around other people mm. you know, it's a museum or an art gallery or whatever and that problem remains regardless of the architecture. So I guess that's what he's reflecting on there. Absolutely. It kind of reminded me, this is like a real tangent, but um, Simona Castricum, who's a musician, but also I think an architecture academic, yeah. and she, was writing, she wrote this article about designing spaces to be welcoming to trans people in the design, and it really made me think of that, like the practical application of something like that versus the intentions at the drawing board, and yeah. that it doesn't often translate like it's something that, yeah. We need to work on, I suppose. Yeah. That sounds like a really interesting article. I should look that up. Yeah. And a good, really great musician too. I mean, I think there is, like, there's absolutely nothing wrong and with people trying to build that into public spaces. And it's great that they are trying to do that. I think it's just Tom at that time is in a dark place. And so he's like, you know, but he's not really getting the help that he could be getting either. He could be seeing a psychologist. He could be talking to his partner. He could be being much more honest about what's going on in his life. And he's not. So he's sort of being cynical about the results of those things. But yeah, I mean, those things help, but they don't transform society, do they? They don't transform psychology. Do you think that as our kind of collective cultural understanding of anxiety and the willingness to talk about it in public grows, will will we see more books about anxiety, like in fiction? Or do you think it'll become just a part of the backdrop and be less common to write about in fiction? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it is being written about more explicitly now. And I definitely have seen it as a theme in novels more in the last five years or whatever. So, you know, hopefully it's not just like a a, a trend or whatever fashion and and then move on to something else or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. I think it will be written about in different ways. 
I mean, we're just living in increase, increasingly anxious times as well, aren't we? I mean, there's certain levels, yes. different types of anxiety. Um, it's kind of like the anxiety about climate change and now obviously about COVID and stuff. So I think it's sort of bubbling away in the backdrop of sort of every contemporary novel in some, some ways. Maybe not the acute anxiety disorder that someone like Tom has, but Jenny Offal's new book, Weather or whatever, which is all about climate change, but the anxiety of that and about the irreversible change that's already happened and, and all of that and bringing kids up in this now altered world. So I think anxiety will continue to be a pretty prevalent force in the backdrop of a lot of contemporary fiction. Absolutely. Totally. And that kind of, that kind of chronic anxiety that is in a lot of climate fiction that we've been sort of yeah. seeing increase and increase and increase over the past year. There's, there's all these really awesome books like um, The Glad Shout and things like that, as well as The Jenny Offal or it's yeah. this kind of dangerous, low-lying anxiety that's always there. Yes. I mean, in The Glad Shout, it's kind of like almost post-apocalyptic, isn't it? It's like after a big disaster, mm. yeah, which I haven't still properly read. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You might think of other, more, other books that have anxiety as a theme. I definitely seen, I think I've seen it as kind of like a, as sort of an underlying theme in, in lots of books, as I guess mm. we're saying. I was thinking when I was reading those, the Nausgaard novels and my struggle novels, you could tell that he's, he's a very anxious character without ever sort of confessing that. I think, you know, that would have been five or six years ago when I, when I read that. And Ben Lerner as well, an American writer, I think there's a lot of anxiety around social interactions yeah, about authentic selves and about the appearance and how you're, how you're coming across to other people, leaving the Atoka station. Did you read that book, Ellen? No, I didn't. No, I, I, I really wanted to, but it, it came off at the time when my TBR pile was like up to my head. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's um, very much about yeah, him basically putting on a, a, an act in front of everybody he meets to try and impress them his whole life. Yeah. The, again, I guess the cost of that or whatever. Um, so as well as being, you know, a novel that really looks at mental health and anxiety, this is really a novel about relationships and the relationship between Tom and Clara is kind of the central point of the whole thing. Can you kind of give us a, an elevator pitch for their relationship? Yeah, so it's a long-term relationship. They've been together for, I guess, 14 years. They met in their early 20s. They lived together and then got sort of got together and then had some ups and downs and so yeah I guess there's two streams in the book there's kind of the contemporary story of their time in Bali and the people they meet there and they're just two weeks it's just that sort of two-week period and then there's a lot of flashbacks because it's the first time they've been overseas for so long it's reminding Tom of a long trip they took overseas when they first got together after a year or so when they went to Europe and they went overseas for like 10 months and so all these experiences in Bali are triggering memories of that past trip. And so it's a way, I guess, technically, it's a way, um, and structurally, it's a way for me to give the backstory of their relationship is, a, is you know, through these triggered memories that he's having, having while on holiday. But he relates all sorts of times, their time living in share houses in Melbourne, and then their time overseas together, and then apart, they kind of broke up for a while, and then um, they get back together. And so it's an on-again, off-again kind of relationship, but it somehow lasts. And they're here now, 14 years later, in their mid-30s, still together, but a lot of, there's a lot of silences in their relationship, a lot of things they don't talk about, and I guess those things are sort of coming to a head. And, you know, she is, Clara is um, a quiet person who doesn't talk a lot and has her own silences and her own mental health issues too. And 
it's, it was a technical challenge in the book and it, is, it was a difficulty writing it because I'm telling the story from Tom's point of view. But Tom's point of view is kind of very much compromised by the fact that he's a bit oblivious to what's going on with Clara in, in, in her life and, and in the relationship. And he's sort of self-obsessed with his own anxiety and his own issues and with concealing those things from her. We can only get so much of a sense of who Clara really is, what mm. she's going through, because it's all told from Tom's perspective. So that was the challenge for me. It was like, how do I give the reader enough of Clara? So that when she does do the things that she does towards the end of the book without giving spoilers, that makes sense, you know, and they can they get a sense of her. I guess the way of doing that is by giving a lot of intense thoughts and, and feelings and stuff about Clara from Tom that hopefully reveals enough about him and reveals enough about her. And you get a, hopefully the reader gets a sense that, that what Tom thinks is going on is not necessarily what Clara thinks is going on and not necessarily the whole story. That was, that was difficult to sort of pull that off. But yeah. I can imagine this, this is maybe like my own brain just running off, but like I kind of read Tom a little bit like Holden Caulfield from The Catcher in the Rye, where he, in his head, we're, we're very close into his like psyche the whole time. We're like listening to all his thoughts. It's all very like zoomed in on Tom. When you think about the things that he does and the things that he says from an outside perspective, you're like, this guy's kind of a jerk. Like, even yeah. though we know he's, struggling and he's going through some really horrible stuff he acts like a jerk and it, it kind of reminded me of that of that book i get that actually it's, it's interesting yeah i haven't looked at that book for a long time since i was like 17 or something yeah yeah but yeah that's uh that's interesting and i can totally see that and that's yeah it's interesting like even holden caulfield a lot of people read that book and absolutely love it and mm. absolutely love the point of view and 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 him holden and some people just think he's a, as you say a jerk Holden Caulfield and what like self-obsessed little annoying teenager or whatever Mm. and yeah so I guess that's true he is very much he's kind of narcissistic and very much in his own head and you can kind of empathize to some degree while not liking everything about him and I guess that's something I was going for with Tom and certainly was aware that I'd written an, an, an unlikable character or someone that's not yeah like I certainly didn't write a nice like just a nice guy like I didn't really want to write someone who's anxiety, like he's just a victim, like a nice guy who, whose anxiety is something that he's struggling with and he's just a nice guy struggling with this difficult thing. I wanted him to be an ambiguous, complex, real feeling character. Tom's who I came up with. And I certainly knew that was going to be a bit of a challenge for certain readers who might be expecting to have an overtly sympathetic narrator. Whereas I, I'm quite, I mean, I like reading books where you have that ambiguous feeling or conflicted feelings about characters. You know, you don't have to like them all the time. Mm. They have to feel real. I'm kind of, kind of quite happy for readers to sit with that conflicting feelings of both feeling empathy and sympathy, but seeing that he's a flawed guy who is like, unlikable in various, in various ways. But that doesn't mean he's not deserving of sympathy. Yeah. That was something I played around with, like how unlikable was I going to make him or whatever. But I felt like as soon as I started thinking that in a more mechanical way, I started losing sense of who he really was. I just had to stick to my gut feeling of who the person was I was creating. And so there's some, certainly some pretty uncomfortable moments of sort of fairly unfiltered male gaze type. Yes, there um, are. <laughs> I mean, I think in, in a way, structurally, that's almost a bit of a hurdle because it happens early on in the book. You know, they're getting to Bali, this beautiful place, and he's lying on the beach and he's being a bit of an asshole about objectifying women around him. 
talking about Clara in fairly, like he obviously loves Clara and finds her attractive, but he thinks about her in fairly, fairly crude, objectified kind of ways. But I also didn't want to shy away from that. I was thinking, this is the kind of guy I've got, like I'm writing mm. about. This is what he'd think, you know, so I'm going to say this. And then also hope that the reader can recognise that I'm not, you know, approving or condoning or what any of that, but I'm simply, yeah, trying to give you that character, make him as real as possible in that moment. Yeah, which I think is also a tonal thing. I mean, sometimes people can write an unlikable character and they can be very obviously unlikable. You're sort of supposed to hate them and they're mm. a villain or a bad guy or whatever. And that can be fun to read about an overtly bad person. But I was always keen to make it a little harder for the reader to figure out quite where their sympathies should lie. Like I like that, playing with that tone. People like Michelle de Kretzer, I think, does that well. Yes, she does that really brilliantly. In The Life to, the life to Come, is that what it's called? Yeah. The most recent one? That's what I was thinking of as well. And she does that thing where you're not quite sure, is she being satirical, satisfied mm. these people? Or are we supposed to be sympathetic towards them? And the tone kind of you know, plays around with that a little bit is that sometimes it seems more broadly satirical and they seem more overtly, like, ridiculous and then it pulls back and, yeah, so I kind of like playing with that tone as well, which I think is more disorienting as well. So then readers are like, are we supposed to like Tom? Are we supposed to not like him? Like, I'm not making it easy for people. I think most of the time readers get that, you know. I think it was also I just didn't want to shy away from that stuff. Like, if... Yeah, it's just as long as people get the idea that I'm not sort of uncritically representing it, you know, that, that that is part of his flaws as a person. People do have ugly thoughts when it's unfiltered and they know other people aren't listening. Mm, they uh, do. Yes. Um, I was just going to say, I think when you have a nuanced, unlikable character like Tom, so like we can see what he's thinking and how he's kind of processing things and processing his mental illness it's yeah. more interesting. Like I can't remember the last time I read a book with like just a nice, like undamaged character as the protagonist. And I was like, this is really fascinating. Like it's kind of boring. I don't know. What is kind of boring? So what do you mean? Uh, if you, if you have like a, a, a nice normal yeah. protagonist who doesn't have any sort of like internal conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the kind of characters I'm interested in. I also didn't want to go overtly the other way and make him just like a bad man. Like, yeah. Very easily do that as well. Like, in you know, there's a lot of, I guess, Me Too kind of books coming out in the era of Me Too, where it's about gaslighting misogynist men or whatever, which is completely understandable why that would be a subject for fiction as well. But that wasn't, I didn't want, I think I just felt like it'd be easy to make him like just a straight out total. Yeah. I wanted people to be able to see glimpses of him being a good person and someone that genuinely loves his partner and wants to be there for her, but just really struggles to find that authenticity because he's struggling with his whole his own demons all the time mm. um, and not being honest about it. So I just thought that was more interesting than kind of going. I mean, I, I mean, I like I like books with unlikable characters. Like, I mean, you know, Moshfeg, um, a year rest and relaxation, mm. are pretty unlikable characters in some ways, and she goes much more extreme. Of course, uh, yeah, that way because that's her thing. I guess at some point I thought, oh, I could just go. I could go further with this and make him a real, but I sort of pulled back from that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if, you know, if I could say one thing about this character, it's that you can, you can actually see the way his illness twists the way he sees the world. So you can see something nice come into him and then it just gets twisted into something completely different. And the panic and the stress and the shame, there's a lot of talk about shame in this book, just totally 
changing his internal landscape and the way that he treats people and interacts with them. Exactly. Yeah. That's really well articulated. It's, it's very good. We have a, an audience question, so I might just ask you that to kind of start wrapping up. So it's from Angus and says, love the book, Luke. My question is a bit of a technical one, but when you are writing your first draft, do you go straight to a laptop, a typewriter or pen to paper? I ask because I fondly remember your handwriting and love the idea that this book might have been rendered in it at some stage, but I'll get over it if not from Angus. That's Angus Johnson, who I know very well, who when I was about 15, I moved out of home and moved to Canberra stayed with Angus Johnson's parents and Angus and he was a, a much younger boy at that stage and you old 11 year old something like that yeah was, I spent two years living with them and I had like these two younger brothers for a couple of years and it was great anyway that's who Angus is so that's a very sweet question but no it's all on the computer and it has been for a long time my handwriting's terrible <laughs> I, don't take, I don't even take notes or a diary or anything by hand I know some writers do that and no typewriters just to the computer. And I guess I take notes on my phone. I keep that around. And so especially when Albertine, when she was young and I was like, she might have her, I might have her on my lap or whatever sleeping. I would um, take notes on my phone. I can't believe that Angus thought my handwriting was ever nice. I I love the idea of an author writing their first draft um, pen to paper, but also it would kind of be a logistical nightmare. (laughs) It's keeping track of it all. Yeah, I guess people, some people do and then use combination between them or whatever. I like the idea. I mean, I don't even keep any kind of diary or even notebooks or whatever. I, I use um, Scrivener and I've just got a mess of documents and yeah, it's not pretty. I'm just going to ask one more question of you to, yep. to sort of wrap the conversation up. Is there a, something that you hope your readers will take away from the fogging? People take away from the fogging? Mm. Um, I guess probably a lot of writers are pretty reluctant to say what they want people to take from books. Totally. And I'm probably the same. You don't want to be didactic about it or say, you know, the book's about this and and, um, I want you to take that that away from it. But I have been asked that question before now a few times, so I've had a thought about it a little bit. I guess, yeah, something, I guess in some ways connected to what we are talking about before, you know, that people can take or, you know, sit with conflicted feelings about people and characters and people, real people that they encounter as well. You know that people are complex and that, you know, you can see good and bad in people and people can be, yeah, so you can sit with that feeling of both that sort of humanity of people and that sympathy of, with people and also find them incredibly frustrating at the same time. So I, I like the encouragement of that kind of um empathy and sympathy that people don't have to be perfect and people are flawed but I guess you know because it's a book about anxiety I guess about something about the corrosive nature of you know unacknowledged or untreated anxiety or even any kind of mental health and especially you know silences in important relationships and how that can be corrosive as well and, and so I guess that's what the book about is about in some ways is seeing the effects on that on a certain man and yeah, the way he tries to deal with that. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be stuff like that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of a mean question for me to ask because this is like literally the least didactic book I have ever read. It's very like you're so trusting of your readers with your metaphors and with the ideas that you're offering up. And like you say, with that, I think it's clear that you are sitting in a discomfort with Tom. Like you're very like, it's a nuanced view of a person who's got some good and some bad to him. But yeah, so that was a bit of a mean question, but thank you for giving it a good answer anyway. Asking me the tough questions. (laughs) Um, 
I think we might have one more question actually in here. It is a question and it says, hi, Luke. I'm just wondering how do you drown out the world when you're writing? Do you listen to music? If so, what? Um, thank you for the question. It's funny because just this week I've been putting together a playlist, um, Scribe, my publisher, uh, starting a Spotify account. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, they asked me to put a playlist together for this book. So I put a playlist together and spent way too long agonising about songs I was going to use to represent the fogging as a playlist. And I decided at one point I was going to make a playlist that represents, you know, that follows the action of the book. So a song for sort of every chapter or something. And then I realised that was ridiculous and I was really overthinking the whole thing. Yeah, so that made me think of some book, some music that I'd been listening to, I think, while I was writing the book. But mostly, no, mostly I work in, well, not silence, but without any music playing. Some of that was by necessity because I was doing it around sleeping babies and stuff like that too, I guess, sleeping toddlers. But yeah, I guess I teach and so and I do some freelance writing and stuff like that. Even before COVID, I did a lot of just working from home and then I had a certain amount of contact hours on campus or whatever. So I usually have, most of the time I have like a af- couple of afternoons or one day a week, which can be a writing day. And at the moment, I don't really have that because there's no daycare. So uh, I have Albertine at home full time. But yeah, when I was writing this book, that's what I had. So I had one good day where I actually had this really good dedicated time. And because I had a newborn, I was making, really making the most of that. I wasn't wasting it. And I was just working really hard. I was like, okay. And so for the rest of the week, I'd be taking notes on my phone or whatever and ideas or little scenes or snippets of dialogue. And then when I get to that day, which yeah, I think was a Friday most of the time, I would just get that all done and write as much as I possibly could and then reread for the next week. So I don't really have any problems blocking out the world. Like once you're immersed in something and you want to write it and you're keen to write it, and I think sometimes having a limited amount of time makes you more driven and more disciplined because you just really value the time. But yes, keep an eye out for Scribe's Spotify account, which will be launched soon. And my playlist, I think, is the first one. So keep an eye out for that. There's some very sad, anxious songs on there, which people can enjoy. I think we might leave it at that because a Spotify playlist is a good way to end it. And I'm so glad a publisher's making a Spotify channel. That's really exciting to me. Thank you so much for this lovely conversation. It's been really nice to talk to you. It's been really interesting. And for everybody watching, this is The Fogging. I think Megan might have instructions about how you can get it from the library cloud. But um, if you can buy it from your independent bookshop or borrow it after libraries are allowed to open back up again, you absolutely should. Thanks for asking so many great questions. Yeah, it was great, real pleasure. Um, it's true you can get the fogging through Yarra Libraries through Cloud Library at the moment. While we're closed, that, that's your best library option, but please also contact your local bookstores in your area. Many of them are offering click and collect or delivery right now. But if that's not an option for you right now, of course, there is also the library one available. Thank you for coming tonight. Read the book, everyone. <laughs>